Matthew chapter 4, we're looking at the uh, temptation of Christ, and this is uh, our third sermon, but our, we're looking at the second temptation today. It's not going to be a very long sermon, it's going to be quite short. I had to help my son uh, build a carport this week, so, but, um, you know, second temptation and really amazing stuff, and we'll learn a lot here, uh, but I'm going to read uh, 1 to 11, 1 to 7, no, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. <clears throat> now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And here's our text today, starting at verse 5. And the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written, again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God or test. Again, the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and, obey, and only him, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So we ended with the first temptation, and now we're at the second. <coughs> Throw yourself down. After being soundly defeated by Jesus, who used scripture as a sword, as a weapon, against him, Satan doesn't give up, but rather chooses a new setting and a new tactic. If Jesus is going to appeal to sacred scripture as his authority, the devil will now use the same weapon. In the first temptation, Satan wanted Jesus to ignore the Bible and God's will for him so that he would strike out on his own. The devil's first attempt was similar to the one in the garden, and that the devil wanted Jesus to act autonomously and ignore the humble, obedient path to godly dominion set before him by God. And we noted those similarities between the temptation and the garden. Satan's goal for Jesus and his goal for God's people is to get them to act independently of God and act independently of the Word of God and determine for themselves what is truth what is right and wrong, and do your own thing. That's the devil's philosophy. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all that stuff. That comes right out of the devil. In this second temptation, the serpent will take scripture out of context and pervert it in an attempt to get our Lord to act recklessly and tempt God, which is a sin or test God. 
And there are three things to consider in these verses. First, there is the setting which is dramatic. We have a new setting. <clears throat> the devil transports Jesus, and the verb here, paralambane, uh, literally means take along with him. To the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Now Christ obviously was not carried there by force, but in obedience to what God wanted. This was a test for Jesus. The devil was tempting him to sin. God was testing him to make him uh, sympathize with us and also to obey and conquer the devil where Adam had failed to obey. The testing before him was not yet completed. <clears throat> now, because the devil is a spirit being, there are a lot of commentators, well, liberal ones certainly, and also a lot of neo-evangelical, which are influenced by liberalism, that view this scene as only a vision. They don't think that Jesus actually went to the top of the temple. They think this happened in a vision. And this view must be rejected for number one, our Lord was truly a man and not simply a spirit. And number two, if Jesus was not physically present on the roof of the temple, there would be no real danger in him jumping off, would there? For his physical body was still in the desert. If there was no physical danger, then it would not be a real temptation, it would be a pretend temptation. So we have to stick to the old standard orthodox interpretation, he really, literally, bodily, went to the top of the temple. Jerusalem is called the Holy City, which is its designation in the prophets. O Jerusalem, the Holy City, Isaiah 52.1. Your Holy City, Daniel 9.24. It is also called that in the Psalms, 46, 4, 48, 1 to 3, 9 to 14, 122, and also see Nehemiah 11, 1 and 18, and Daniel 3:38 in the Greek Septuagint. So that's a biblical designation, the holy city. This title is also used in Matthew 27, 53, Revelation 11, 2, Revelation 21, 2, etc. Now, why is Jerusalem called the holy city? Well, it's a holy because God set it apart as a special place for sacrifices and worship. Man can't make a city holy. We can't make anything holy. But God can. He set it apart. It was a city designated by God for the temple where Yahweh's special presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Consequently, it is called the city of God the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. And that's Psalm 46.4 and see Matthew 5.35. The city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. It's where God's special presence, Shekinah presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. So it was a special city. No doubt. It was a city designated by God for the temple and Yahweh's special presence. Only God can make a place holy. 
Jerusalem was the most populous city in Israel, and the temple was regarded as one of the wonders of the ancient world. The Jews, however, in the days of Jesus, had turned the city into a filthy, impure place, but it retained the biblical title due to God's infinite holiness, not man's religiosity. So the city was a holy city, but the Jews in the days of Jesus were a wicked people. Jesus himself said that. The site of the temple for this particular temptation was clever, and that the Jews regarded the temple's precincts as a special place of divine protection. And you read in uh, David's commander, what was his name, Joab? I forgot his name. Uh, when he was going to be killed, what would, what would people do? They would, they would run into the temple precincts. Spare me, I'm at the temple, I'm at the special place of God's protection, and they would get killed anyway. But that was a tradition among the Jews. This is a special place, a place of safety, protection by God. The Holy of Holies contained the mercy seat. And as you know, the mercy seat is made out of wood covered with pure gold with two cherubim aiming inward with their wings out like this. And that symbolizes the throne room of God, God's throne in the throne room of God. God is surrounded in the throne room by holy, mighty holy angels. <clears throat> if there was a place where angels could be called upon to help, the top of the temple was a good one. If God's special presence is there, then we know that holy angels are not far off. Now, the word pinnacle, which we find in all the English translations, comes from the term, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, P-T-E-R-Y-G-I-O-N. It refers to the wing of a building. Only here in the parallel in Luke is this term used to describe a building, a building feature. In classical Greek, the word was used of a protruding feature on armor or on a boat. If you've seen some of the Greek ships, at the end of the boat there might be a, a giant protruding beam of wood that sticks up like this and it might be decorated. Well, that's where the word would be used. Or you might have an uh, armor with a curve and a, something that goes way up like this, and that, that's where the word would be used. So it's used here of the top of the roof, a wing of the building on top of the roof with some sort of something sticking out. We can infer that they were on top of a high corner of the temple roof. The wings of the Herodian or second temple were 60 cubits high. A cubit is from your elbow to the tip of your fingers. And the porch, there was a porch out that stuck out front that was 100 cubits high. So a cubit's around 17 to 18 inches, so a side wing would be around 95 feet tall. And of course, the temple was surrounded by pavement stones. So if you fell 95 feet, which is, I don't know how many stories that is, eight stories, something like that, seven stories, it would be fatal. It would most certainly be fatal. <clears throat> So that's the setting. Let's look at the temptation. Second, 
there's the devil's temptation. <clears throat> if, for since, you could translate it since, you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And here's the why you should throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Verse 6. The words, if you are the Son of God, are identical to the first temptation. In the first temptation, Jesus wanted to save himself from suffering hunger. By exercising his miraculous powers, for he was God's Son. In this temptation, Satan wants Jesus to subject God to a test or subject the Word of God to the test because they're really equivalent. Here's this passage. Are you going to, is this passage true or not? So he wants to subject the Word of God to an empirical experiment to see if Yahweh's promises are really true. God has made this promise it's in the Word of God. Is it true or not? Let's see. Jump. And once again, the devil does not want Christ to accept the authority of Scripture based on his trust in God and knowledge of the Lord's attributes or truth, righteousness, and faithfulness. According to the serpent, man must autonomously decide or determine the authority of Scripture and consequently God's reliability. It's very clever. The Word of God says this. But how do we know if it's really true? Well, let's do this. Let's conduct this experiment. And if you don't go splat on the rocks below, on the pavement below, we'll know that the Bible's true. That's what he's doing. If such a presupposition is accepted, then the whole Bible is called into question because it is impossible to prove many spiritual things through empirical scientific experiments. And there is a sense in which that which is unseen, that is spiritual, and cannot be proved empirically, can be demonstrated by indirect means or logical inferences. And here's the example that Van Til used to give. You're in a building. Let's say you're on the second floor in a building. You're on top of a floor. Have you seen the beams in that floor? Do you know what holds up that floor? Well, no, you haven't. Well, if you had strict empiricism, you couldn't say there are beams in that floor because you haven't seen them. You haven't demonstrated that there are beams. But by logical inference, there has to be beams in the floor. So you can prove something indirectly. We don't talk about proof of spiritual realities in the same way that we talk about proof of that tree over there is an apple tree. We can go over and walk it and look at the le examine the leaves and see that it's got apples on it. Well, you can't prove spiritual things in that same way. But even this procedure cannot be attempted without first standing on the inspired and fallible Word of God. And like we mentioned last week, what does the Bible say? 
<clears throat> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs chapter 1, and I forgot, I forgot to write this down. That's taught in the Proverbs, and it's taught in other places as well. Augustine used to say, we have to believe in order to see. We have to believe before we can understand. We have to understand to believe, but we also have to believe even to understand. Now, what is particularly deceitful, clever, and cunning about this temptation is that Satan quotes Scripture as the reason that Jesus should subject God and the Bible to a test. It is as though Satan says, well, you know Scripture. I know Scripture, too. My proposal is backed up with, it is written. You are not going to deny the Bible, are you? It's an extremely clever tactic. And, of course, atheists, if you watch these atheists on YouTube, there's a bunch of popular atheists and agnostics, and they're all complete fools and idiots. They're not, a, they're not brilliant or smart in their arguments because they stand on the presupposition that the Bible's not the word of God. Of course, they're going to come to the wrong conclusions because their axioms are wrong. Their starting point is wrong. It's like Van Til says, they, they have a saw and the saw cuts, but because the starting point is wrong, it always cuts in the wrong direction. It always cuts at the wrong angle. Now, the passage quoted is from Psalm 91, 11 to 12. And it follows the Greek Septuagint, though it is slightly abbreviated, but it's faithful to the Septuagint. This is a passage that speaks to Yahweh's promise of protection to all of God's covenant people. Its main theme is to abide under the protection of the Most High, under the shadows of the Almighty, Psalm 91.1. It teaches us that God delivers those who trust in him, verses 3 to 8. And it describes the complete security enjoyed by those who have faith in God, verses 9 to 13. And then additional promises are made to those who rely on the Lord, verses 14 to 16. So the focus is on faith, belief, trust, reliance on God. In verses 11 and 12, we are told that Yahweh even makes use of his holy angels to protect his people. So in colorful, poetic metaphor, these angels are portrayed as actually lifting the individual over every stone. Over which whatever might he might stumble and fall and come to some kind of injury. And if you know anything about the Middle East, it's dry and there's rocks everywhere. And it's obviously poetic metaphor. The angels are not going to let you trip and break your skull. That's what it's saying. Satan's basic argument is that if this promise applies to all those who have faith in Yahweh that it most certainly applies to you since you are the Son of God. Now, the devil's interpretation and use of this passage involves two very serious errors. 
One error is the interpretation of Scripture is done in isolation from the rest of Scripture or out of context. And this is very important that we learn from this because this is what the cults do. This is what Romanists do. And we have to understand, the devil knows Scripture probably better than most Christians. He's been around a long time. And he's, he can quote obscure passages verbatim. But, of course, his use is totally to cause people to sin. The teaching that Yahweh will protect those who trust in him does not authorize a reckless, dangerous lifestyle for the commandment, you shall not murder, Deuteronomy 20.15, I mean, Exodus 20.13, Deuteronomy 5.17, <clears throat> forbids not only the physical act toward others or oneself, but also the neglect of those things that preserve life. Now, I've met people who drove recklessly that were professing Christians and wouldn't wear a seatbelt. I'd say, you really should wear a seatbelt. You know, if you get in a wreck, you could crack your skull. You could splat your face in the windshield and break everything in your face and possibly die. Oh, well, God will protect me. God's in control. If he wants me to die, I'll die. What's the problem with that? It's a denial of the validity of the secondary agent. Yes, God is sovereign. God controls all things. But that doesn't mean we're free to act with irresponsibility. I, my life was saved at least twice by wearing a seatbelt. One time I was in a head-on collision back in 1986. And uh, the car was completely totaled. And all I had to do is I had to have knee surgery uh, because my leg flew up and hit the dashboard. But if I wasn't wearing a seatbelt, I would have definitely died. So, there's a fallacy there. We are always to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We are supposed to interpret a passage in light of other passages that speak to that issue or are tangentially related to that issue. And the Protestant Reformers were really good at this, and they called this the analogy of faith. And the Westminster Confession of Faith describes this crucial method of interpretation as follows. <clears throat> the infallible rule, and this is from uh, 111, from the Confession of Faith, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. End of quote. Now, if you study the history of hermeneutics, the history of biblical interpretation, it was the Protestant Reformation that was not only a reformation of justification by faith alone, a reformation in worship, a reformation in practice, and all these things, in ecclesiology, it was a great reformation in biblical interpretation. And the reason they made great strides in biblical interpretation was because the Roman Catholic theologians, they get in these debates and they quote stuff totally out of context, and they would do things, take a passage out of context, and make it teach salvation by works. For example, the second chapter of James, and the Federal Visionists do that as well. Well, if there are 35 passages that explicitly say that we're not saved by works, 
but that we're saved through faith alone, by Christ alone, then if you're saying that James 2 teaches that we're saved by works, your interpretation most certainly is wrong. Many clear passages are to be used to help understand the more obscure, difficult passages. That's a very important point. Mormons, for example, there are poetic metaphor in the Psalms talking about God having a body or God having arms or wings and things like that. And they take that literally and they say, oh yeah, God has a physical body. Well, there's hundreds of passages that say God is a pure spirit and doesn't have a body at all. He's not physical in any way. So they take one obscure poetic passage out of context to pervert the hundreds of passages that are crystal clear, that teach the opposite. That's what the cults do. So interpretation is very important, and I think one thing that all churches should probably do is have a course on hermeneutics and teach people how to interpret Scripture so they're not tripped up. When the Bible is taken as a full, organic revelation, difficult passages can be understood, and any apparent contradictions are easily resolved. Remember, the Bible has zero contradictions. It's in perfect harmony. It's an organic revelation. It comes from God. It's inerrant, inspired, without error in everything it teaches. The Protestant reformers emphasized this biblical procedure for Romanist scholars were experts at taking passages out of context to justify their damnable heresies and perverted practices. Things like, uh, and I've heard atheists do this too, to their own destruction. God told Israel uh, they're bitten by snakes in the wilderness. And God says, make a bronze serpent and hold it up, and whoever stares at the bronze serpent uh, will be healed. And they won't die. And that's taken by scholars as, oh yeah, we can make idols. We can make images of Mary and Joseph and bow down and kiss their feet and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. The point of the bronze serpent was simply to show that they had faith in God's word. The, the, the pole didn't save anybody. It was the fact that they trusted in God's word that saved those people. And the moment people started worshiping the bronze serpent, God had it destroyed. If one examines how the various cults develop and justify their heretical doctrines, they all follow the devil's method of interpretation. Number one. Ignore the context. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, every cult does this. They completely ignore the context. Number two, they ignore the type of biblical literature being used. For example, in Hebrew poetry, uh, sometimes dramatic and vivid metaphors are used to express a truth, but these metaphors are not meant to be taken literally. Okay, Mormons do that all the time. God doesn't literally have wings. God doesn't literally ride upon a cloud. <clears throat> Jesus is not a literal rock or a literal door or a literal loaf of bread or, a, or the temple building or a fountain of water. These are metaphors. You have to understand what type of literature we are looking at. And Mormons don't do that. And they make grievous errors to their own destruction. And then three, Ignore that they ignore the purpose of the passage. For example, a promise of protection from calamity that may happen to a believer 
is far different than deliberately creating a calamity. See the difference? God protects his people. But that doesn't mean we should go, go hop on a uh, Kawasaki 1000 and weave in and out of traffic doing 150 miles an hour. And some people interpret scripture that way, and that's just ridiculous. You like to hang glide off of cliffs and you get killed? Well, you're engaging in very dangerous behavior. There's an incredible difference between stumbling over a rock as one walks and deliberately jumping off a cliff. We are responsible as valid secondary agents who are required to live in a manner that protects and preserves life. And uh, the best thing to read on this, of course, is the larger catechism when it discusses thou shalt not kill. And it, thou shalt not kill applies to many situations, and it applies to how you treat yourself. You know, uh, I think a very, very, very moderate, infrequent use of tobacco is not sinful at all if you want to have a cigar once in a while. But chain-smoking cigarettes and giving yourself cancer is sinful and irresponsible. Alcoholic beverages are totally lawful, but getting drunk is not lawful and destroying your health and your liver. <clears throat> the other error, which is the one that Jesus addresses explicitly, is that it is wrong to put God to some kind of test in order to see if his word is really true. The devil says it is written as an appeal to authority, then turns right around and asks Jesus to test the word or subject it to an experiment to see if it is genuine or trustworthy. That's really clever. It's very deceitful. Satan's it is written is totally insincere. It is merely a ploy to attempt to deceive Jesus so that he acts contrary to what scriptures actually teach. You see how clever that is? He, in essence, is asking Christ to prove by faith his faith by denying his faith. Oh, you really have faith? Well, let's pretend the, words, the Bible's not the word of God, <laughs> and let's see if it is true. Well, if you have faith, you don't need to do that. <clears throat> Satan asked Jesus to deliberately create a situation in which the Father is forced to act in order to prove that the word of God is true and that he really loves his son. But what did God just say? Chapter 3, verse 17. This is my beloved son. This is my son who I love, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had the word. He didn't need to prove that. He heard it from God himself. So for Jesus to do this would be to deny what God had just told him. The tempter is asking Jesus to act autonomously, contrary to the revealed will of God, to control God as if he had authority over the Father. Once again, the serpent seeks to turn the purpose of the incarnation upside down. Instead of Christ being the humble servant who has come to earth to do the Father's will, remember the covenant of redemption we discussed last week, he wants Jesus to act as if God is there to serve his needs. 
No, you don't be humble, Jesus. You tell God what to do. You force God's hand. When that's not why Jesus came. He came to do the will of his Father. And Jesus, especially the book of John, read the Gospel of John, he says it over and over. I've come to do my, the Father's will. Now that Jesus could have had protecting angels at his call is at once proved by our Lord's statement during his arrest. Remember that? Peter takes out a sword and Peter's like, let's kick their rear ends. Come on, Jesus. And Jesus says, put your sword away. I could have 12 legions of angels. Just in a moment, I, instantly I could have 12 legions of angels here. You know how many 12 uh, legions is? That's 72,000 angels. A Roman legion has 6,000. That's 72,000 angels. Now, only two angels killed 200,000 Assyrian warriors in one day. Two angels killed 200,000 warriors in one day. Imagine what 72,000 could do. But why did Jesus submit to being arrested and treated like dirt? and beaten and tortured and crucified. That was his doing the Father's will. That's what he came to do. That's part of his humiliation. And by the way, that's from Matthew 26, 53. He did not ask because he came to earth to suffer and die on the cross for his people. In his state of humiliation, Christ did not rely on his angels to protect him or to escape humiliation, to escape suffering. He also deliberately refused to allow his divine attributes to be witnessed by the masses. His exaltation had to be preceded by perfect faithfulness during his life of humiliation. So Satan's temptation is multifaceted in its, in its diabolical nature and how evil it is. <clears throat> now the satanic tactic warns us about a very common error found among professing Christians in our day. And I'm talking about the name it and claim it prosperity gospel. It goes back to the 1940s. I forgot the man's name, but he was uh, his. Well, also it's also influenced by Norman Vincent Peale, who's even earlier than the 40s. Uh, this idea of, of having a psychological attitude of uh, I deserve to be blessed and I am blessed, therefore I will be blessed, and, and you couple that with a, a heretic from the 1940s who Kenneth Hagin copied. Uh, Kenneth Hagin's one of the earlier advocates of this, and then of course Kenneth Copeland, who's almost a, I think he's a billionaire, and uh, all these prosperity preachers on television who have giant churches and they fly around in, you know, twenty-six million dollar jets and they live in giant mansions and everything. <clears throat> the name it and claim it prosperity gospel. It's common in charismatic circles, as well as among television preachers and mega church pastors. The basic idea is that if you have real faith and you consequently speak the word of faith, then God must obey every prayer or petition. Kenneth Hagin, I actually saw Kenneth Hagin preach. I've seen Kenneth, I used to be charismatic. I saw Kenneth Hagin preach. I saw Kenneth Copeland preach. And I, when I saw Kenneth Hagin, he talked about, I wanted a Cadillac. I named it and I claimed it. And I got a Cadillac. They teach that. 
You want that house over there, that mansion, you walk around it. You claim it. If you have the word of faith, God will give you that house. And then, of course, coupled with that is almost all of them, uh, especially people like Oral Roberts. And if you give to my ministry, if you plant that seed <laughs> by giving me money, God will bless you a hundredfold. And that's how they, they, these people get rich. It's a scam. If one has faith for a luxury car or a beautiful house or great wealth, as well as perfect health, God must obey that word of faith. And this view turns and twists biblical faith, which is a humble trust, a looking away from self to Christ and the word, a humble trust, a humble belief and reliance on God and his will, and to faith in man's autonomous positive thinking. Faith in one's exalted psychological state which when expressed in words becomes like a magical incantation that controls God. That's really what they're teaching. Jesus says you have to pray according to God's will. Well, you might have cancer, and it might not be God's will for you to be healed. You might die. And I know people that were super godly, super dedicated, that prayed fervently and fasted and everything, and they died of cancer. I know more than one. It exalts man's positive thinking above God and his word. And it presupposes that God exists to serve our worldly desires. Remember that Kennedy thing? Ask not what you can do for your country, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And the name and claim it is, ask not what you can do to serve God. God is there to serve you. It assumes that our purpose in life is not to pick up our cross and follow Christ on the narrow and difficult road of Christian discipleship, but rather that we are here to get rich, accumulate possessions, and live in luxury. These false teachers advocate a humanistic, blasphemous concept of faith as magic, as a way to force God's hand. In addition, we should note that Satan did not have the power to push Christ off the roof. He could only ask Jesus to jump based on a false premise and distortion of Scripture. He can tempt, but he cannot force. His power is limited. We fall into sin and cause problems and mischief when our inner lusts cooperate with the devil's lies and we are persuaded to commit sin. The devil can't force you to sin. We're never forced. But we are enticed. Therefore, we have no one to blame for sin but ourselves. It is for this reason that we must study scripture to understand how the devil operates and how to wage war against our sinful flesh and the allurements of this world. And the best defense is a good offense, a vigorous, active offense, which involves a detailed knowledge and faithful application of the word of God. 
Even though Satan completely per perverts this concept, it is written, and twists the word of God, Jesus doesn't abandon using the word of God against the devil. Professing Christians who are ignorant of the Bible and the Christian world and life view are sitting ducks for devilish theologians and demonic ethics. <clears throat> when, I was, when I was very young, I was a door-to-door -door salesman. And I would run in to, uh, this is in California, I run into Mormons all the time, two guys on bikes wearing a blue pants, uh, a white shirt, and a blue tie. Uh, super impeccable, nice-looking guys with nice, clean haircuts. They're going door-to-door -door spreading the Mormonism. And I would run into Jehovah's Witnesses all the time. And I would encounter these guys, and I would engage them. And the moment these people figure out that you really know the Bible and you're not going to be fooled by their lies, they immediately take off. They immediately take off. And then one time I said, well, oh, I'll, I'll go to your Bible study. I went to a Bible study. And they were studying the Gospel of John. And within about 10 minutes, because I'm pointing out, hey, this passage here teaches that Jesus is God explicitly. They threw me out. <laughs> they don't mess around with people that know the Bible. They don't mess around with people that has a double-edged sword in their hand ready to cut their heads off. They're looking for that modernist, that Roman Catholic, that evangelical who doesn't know anything about the Bible. Those are the people that they can really affect, and those are the people they prey upon. Knowledgeable Christians, you know, completely obliterate them instantly. Such people often adopt the culture around them without even questioning what they are doing. They are enticed into following the evil world spirit because they have abandoned the sharp, double-edged sword of Scripture. And it's just, it's just tragic because we have this great weapon that God has given us. It's tragic. Why are churches so full of feminism? Head coverings were abandoned. Why? Feminism. Biblical worship was abandoned. Why? People forgot about the regular principle, even though it's emphasized in Scripture. Biblical Calvinism, the true gospel, was abandoned by millions. People don't know the Scriptures. Well, let that not be you. And now we come to Jesus' answer. Jesus said to him, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's verse 7. Our Lord answers the devil's perversion of Scripture with a passage that proves that Satan's temptation, his interpretation, is false and contrary to God's revealed truth. The fact that the serpent perverts scripture to fit into his own philosophy of dominion through human autonomy and narcissism does not cause Christ to abandon his reliance on the word of God. Christ exhibits faith in the word. He doesn't need an experiment. With one bold, decisive stroke, he rejects the temp tempter's offer and exposes the tempter, as one who is imposing his demonic thinking onto the text. It's brilliant. 
Now, our Lord's quotation is from Deuteronomy 6.16. It agrees verbatim with the Greek Septuagint version of the passage. It is a divine imperative. Thou shalt not against tempting or testing God. The example given of sinful testing in the passage in Deuteronomy refers to what the Israelites did at Massa. And that's uh, spoken of back in Exodus 17, 1-7. The Israelites get out in the wilderness, and they don't have enough water. They lack water. They have great thirst. And their thirst causes them to complain and contend against Moses, who is God's representative. And when Moses prays, he's, God, you've got to do something. These people are about to stone me. And it caused them to question whether God was even among them. 17 verse 7, which was a clear manifestation of unbelief. Instead of humbly relying on God and praying for water, they demanded a miracle to prove that Yahweh was really their God. And this, their test revealed a lack of faith and a lack of reverence in the Lord. Their sin was especially serious and irrational, for God had recently delivered them from Egypt with amazing signs and wonders, miracle after miracle. And we're not talking about, you know, foot lengthenings. We're talking about water turned to blood, raining, you know, uh, the multiplication of frogs, hail, and all these things. For Jesus to force God into a physical rescue would be to test God and would show a serious lack of faith and reverence by using an irresponsible experiment to see if Yahweh's promises could be trusted. A true son and a faithful Christian humbly accepts the authority of God's word and believes the Father's promises because they know Yahweh is faithful. So that's pretty brilliant what the Satan is doing. Hey, hey, Jesus, I want you to prove your faith in the word of God by denying your faith in the word of God. If one accepts the devil's false interpretation of the Lord's promises, that his promises must be subjected to him, empirical experimentation and investigation, then one has unwittingly placed a humanistic authority above the word of God. And that's what Satan is all about. Modern scientists who are atheists and these foolish comedians and entertainers that are atheists and they brag about it and they talk about how stupid the Bible is and how stupid this is and stupid that is. <coughs> They come to the scripture with an axe to grind. They come to the scriptures with a presupposition of unbelief. They have no problem believing in evolution. That there was this little thing of matter in the beginning that exploded and created the whole universe out of, <laughs> out of this little thing. Uh, and they have no trouble believing in that. They have no trouble believing that dirt and water and sunshine somehow became cells and animals. They have no believing. You know, evolution, if you, if you look at it and you study it, and you look at, if you understand biology, if you understand the complexity of a single cell, if you understand the complexity of a cell in humans, if you understand DNA and RNA and all that complexity, the idea that things evolved by chance, simply through long periods of time, it, it, it's, it would be more probable for a nuclear submarine to come into existence by itself than a single cell, if you see how complex a single cell actually is. Because a nuclear submarine is just a machine. 
a single cell does all these, it has all these functions that it does automatically. But they believe that. But someone may object. If we prove the authority and reliability of Scripture based on the Bible itself, are we not guilty of circular reasoning? And the answer is no. For the Scripture's self-authentication is multifaceted and remarkable. Not only is there a harmony of doctrine and purpose in a book written by many, many different authors, inspired authors over thousands of years, but there are dozens and dozens of prophecies that have come to pass with perfection. There are no contradictions. Imagine a book as big as the Bible is, written over thousands of years by all these different authors. Where are there zero contradictions in doctrine or worship or ethics? There are zero contradictions. None. And of course, it's the only book that gives a doctrine of salvation that glorifies God and honestly describes man, man's state. In addition, the Bible is set apart by the impossibility of the contrary. If the scriptures are not our foundation for predication in life, then there can be no real ethics, meaning, purpose, or logic. And that's one of the wonderful things of Van Tillian presuppositional apologetics. You need to presuppose the Bible is the word of God to even have rational debate. For if the universe is, comes about by chance, if the universe is just uh, atoms randomly floating about in the void, there is no such thing as logic. There is no such thing as meaning or ethics. However, the truths of the Bible cannot be properly understood, accepted, and believed without a prior work of the Holy Spirit on one's heart. You could be the best Christian apologist in the world, and you could, uh, you could be Greg Bonson, and Van Til, and Gordon Clark, and uh, if somebody doesn't have the Holy Spirit, they're not going to be convinced. And people believe in evolution. I know they're taught it from birth, but evolution is so absurd. It's so, it's so irrational. It's so impossible, yet people believe it as if it's an absolute truth. The fossil record doesn't teach evolution at all. And the complexity of cells and so forth make, makes evolution impossible. Now, we should learn from this temptation to be happy and content with God as our covenant God. Jesus is our precious Lord and Savior, and the Bible is our sole standard for faith and life. The Bible is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. We need to test ourselves by the scriptures and not subject God or his word to false humanistic presuppositions, because that's what Satan wants you to do. I've known many people that backslid and apostatized. And if you get to talk to them and you ask, and you ask good questions, their answer, their reasons for apostatizing are absurd. Well, why did you leave your husband? You had a good marriage. Why did you leave your husband and your children? Well, I fell in love with another man and, and I, I just knew that my love couldn't be wrong. <laughs> what kind of an answer is that? I've heard that. Remember Amy Grant? Well, you have to follow your love when she committed adultery. The arguments for sin are always ridiculous. When fallen man devoid of the Holy Spirit uses autonomous human reason, they never conclude that God, Yahweh is God or the Bible is true because they be begin with a false starting point. 
When they use empiricism or scientific techniques, they never abandon macroevolutionary theory and embrace creation by an infinite personal God because they have a false axiom. Their, their presuppositions, their starting point is false. So no matter how much evidence you have, they're going to come to the wrong conclusion. In addition, by implication, our text teaches us that we must never <coughs> presume on God's mercy by knowingly committing sin with the thought that Jesus must forgive us. To do so is, in a sense, a testing of God. Jesus most certainly does forgive all of our sins, all the sins in a true believer. But to abuse such a blessed doctrine into a form of antinomianism is a perversion of Scripture that will lead to serious chastisements. And of course, if somebody's not a real Christian, to judgment. We must never be tempted to heed some misapplication of Scripture as an excuse for doing or saying something that is immoral or heretical. In our day, when heresies and antinomianism abounds on all sides, we all need to learn to interpret Scripture properly, carefully, reverently. We must let Scripture interpret Scripture. We must learn the whole Bible carefully to properly understand the various parts of the Bible. And that's why evangelicalism is so uh, terrible today. This idea that the Old Testament's been most of the Old Testament's been abrogated, it doesn't apply. You have to understand the Old Testament to understand Christ. You have to understand the Old Testament to understand ethics. The Old Testament is critical. Yes, the new we have a new covenant. Yes, the New Testament's great. But you need to understand the whole Bible. We must never take passages out of context or use diff difficult, obscure passages to overturn or twist many clear passages or well-established Orthodox Christian teachings. Cults and heretical forms of professing Christianity can only grow and prosper in the soil of ignorance and unbelief. So Jesus has taught us what we need to do. We need to become good at using this double-edged sword that God has placed in our hands. It is a gift. It's the greatest gift we have, other, you know, other than Christ himself. So let's use it. In our day, when most churches are horrible and our culture is going to hell in a handbasket, uh, it's critical. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this uh, incredible part of your holy word. Help us to, uh, to love your word. Help us to learn it. Help us to learn how to apply it. Give us biblical wisdom. Give us a love of your word. Strengthen our faith in it. Make it us depend upon it for every area of life. In Jesus' name, amen.